Mark 12:28 says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem, you recall, with his disciples for this Passover, the last Passover in his ministry. You know, he's not going to partake of that again until in his king, the Father's kingdom, he told the apostles. So he comes in um, on the riding on the donkey down to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and then, you know, he looks around at the temple, he curses a fig tree. And then the next day, these... Uh, religious leaders and political leaders began asking him questions. And so the Pharisees came and they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. He answered them so that they had nothing else to say. And so the Sadducees came asking him about the resurrection and trying to show him how ridiculous it was that there should be a resurrection. Of course, he answered them very adequately. So uh, after these groups have finished, this scribe comes to Jesus. And most of the scribes were also Pharisees. So this is like they're taking another another shot at it here. But not all Pharisees were scribes. Uh, at first, scribes were merely transcribers of God's law and synagogue readers. They were some of the most educated among the people. They later became interpreters of God's law. Uh, and their responsibility was to teach the Torah. Some scribes produced legal documents, such as re they recorded deeds, uh, other type legal documents. They could act as notary public and court secretary. Although some of the scribes copied documents, this was not necessarily a part of their job. But the ones who were copiers of the scriptures on scrolls, and their work was very meticulously performed. Scribes followed meticulous procedures and methods for making copies of God's law. Or the Torah. For example, those who performed the copying were permitted to use only animal skins that were clean for writing. Additionally, the ink they used had to be prepared using a very special formula and had to be black in color. Before each time a scribe wrote the name of God, they were to, com to completely wash both their writing instruments and themselves. Each word had to be read aloud before it was written down. Additionally, every column written by one of the scribes had to have a minimum of 48 lines of text. They were not allowed to write columns that had 61 lines of text or more. And their work was generally reviewed within 30 days. And if three or more pages required any corrections, the entire manuscript had to be rewritten. Scribes had to count the number of letters, words, and so on of each manuscript they wrote. 
And if just two letters touched each other, the document was deemed invalid. So some of these guys are really good, and I don't know, I see people writing scripts and things today, and I think, boy, how do they do that? You know, it's amazing. And these these guys were such as that. So these men also became known as experts in the law of Moses. So the ones who interpreted and taught the Mosaic law were sometimes referred to as lawyers, not lawyers in the sense that we have them today. Over in Matthew chapter 23, uh, in this same time period, Jesus uh, was rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, the whole chapter is woe unto you guys. Uh, in verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitude, said to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. So he's saying they give, if they give you the law of Moses, then that's what you're to follow. But do not... but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. You know, they were commanded in the law to have borders on their garments and tassels. And so, you know, the bigger the border, the holier. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, Teacher, Teacher. So Jesus spends this time rebuking them, and, and it's recorded for us in Luke in chapter 11. It says, Then one of the lawyers answered him. So he's rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees. This lawyer would have been a scribe, but you know he's known as a lawyer. And so one of the lawyers answers and says to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And so, of course, Jesus says, well, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. He says, woe to you also, lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And then down verse 52, he says, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. So he had some problems with the lawyers as well. Over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, shall, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This was amazing to the people who heard because the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the the most righteous, the, the holiest people in the whole society. Look at all these things they do just to try not to be to try to not be offensive to God. But of course we need the righteousness of Christ, which is the only valid righteousness. So this man, this scribe, listens to these disputations with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's impressed with Jesus' answers, and it seems he asked Jesus an honest question. That is, one that is not intended as a trap. Although, according to Matthew, the Pharisees were behind this uh, question, and they did intend it as a trap. 
in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he, he quotes the same commandments. And then he says in verse 40, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So this is a summation. These commandments Jesus answers with summation of all the law and all the prophets. Uh, but, you know, the Pharisees intended this as a question to test Jesus, like the other questions that they had been asking. But maybe they chose the wrong lawyer to put forward with this question, since this guy seems to genuinely want to know what Jesus thinks. And Jesus treats him honestly. Jesus did not consign all members of a group to a stereotypical profile. He knew the hearts of men, and he still does, and he responds to us as individuals. Very much like the Father, he responded to the proud with resistance and to the humble with grace. As we read in 1 Peter 5, he's talking about uh, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, he says, he's speaking to younger people, but then he says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And in James chapter 2 and verse 1, James exhorts us, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality, or to be impartial in the faith that we hold. Love everyone. So there's to be no partiality based on perceived or preconceived criteria. So the question he asks is, which is the first commandment of all? Which commandment is the most important, the preeminent one? This was something that the Pharisees would argue about. Uh, there were, uh, they came up with 613 commandments, and it was one for, one for each letter of the Ten Commandments, from what I understand. And, and then they would have these great debates about which commandment was the most important. Of course, obviously, it was tithing mint and dill, you know. <laughs> but they would argue about it all the time. So this is, you know, what's Jesus say? What's his answer? And uh, William McDonald says it was an honest question. And in some ways, life's most basic question. He was really asking for a concise statement of the chief aim of man's existence. Or we might say, why am I here? This is what the fellow is asking about. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is known as the Shema from the first word, which is hear. And Shema is here to hear. So it's hear, O Israel. And the Jews would repeat this morning and evening, along with some other passages. They would have a, a set prayer that would be said. And so... Uh, in Matthew 22:38, Jesus calls this not only the first, but the great commandment. So the first commandment consists of two parts. The first is, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the Hebrew text, Lord is Yahweh, the personal name of God given to Moses. Recall Exodus 3:14 when Moses said, Whom shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? 
And says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's where the name Yahweh comes from, or some people say Jehovah incorrectly. So he gives this name to Moses, which basically means the self-existent one or the eternal one. There is but one God, and he is self-existent. He depends on no one and nothing else for his existence. He's the life and the source of all life. He alone is God. There is no other. As he says a number of times in Isaiah, there are seven times in chapters 44 to 46 of Isaiah where God says, I alone am God. There is no other. And those chapters 44 through 46 would be an interesting read just for that reason. Deuteronomy 4.35 tells us, uh, the Lord speaking to who to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is none other besides Him. Rather Moses speaking, Deuteronomy four thirty nine and forty. Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord Himself He is God in heaven above and and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There you shall therefore keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time, he tells them. And in Joel chapter 2, 27, it says, Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So we find uh, God saying there's only one. You know, The Lord our God. The Lord is one, only one God. At least ten times in the New Testament, it is affirmed that there is but one true God. An example is 1 Corinthians 8, 4, where Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. And this is what God is saying in this Shema, the first part of the Shema. This Shema speaks of monotheism in contrast to the many surrounding pagan cultures that believed in multiple gods and many times had a god for every situation, as in Athens in Acts 17. Many have used this statement by God of his oneness to deny the doctrine of the Trinity or the triune nature of God. The The doctrine of the Trinity, however, does not deny that God is one. If we look deeper, we see that far from a denial of the triune nature of God, the Shema statement is in coherence with it. The word God used in this statement in the Hebrew is Elohim, and the word Elohim is of plural form. It's often translated gods when referring to the false gods of the heathen, yet it is also the word used for the one true God of creation. So this word in itself, used with the phrase, the Lord is one, includes the concept of a plural unity or a compound unity. So we see a plurality in the nature of the one God. This one God is sometimes referred to in the New Testament using the word Godhead. And the Greek word simply means deity or the state of being God. We read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, all the fullness of what it means to be God, of deity, dwelling in Jesus bodily. In addition, the Hebrew word that's used for one in Deuteronomy 6, 4, 
where the Lord says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is the word echad, Hebrew word echad. This word includes the concept of a compound rather than an absolute unity. The word gives the idea of united or being one. Uh, it's used many places in the Old Testament. Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, it's used a number of times where he says, uh, God, Genesis 1-5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The new King James puts it. Uh, literally were uh, day one is what he's saying, day echad. And so it's the evening and the morning go together to make up one day or day one. In Genesis 2.24, when uh, God is talking about marriage, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Echad. So these two become, become united as one. Uh, the example that I've uh, heard the most often, which is uh, interesting, is when the spies went into the land of milk and honey, the promised land that God was going to give to the Hebrews, they come to this valley of Eshkol. I don't know what it was called before that. It became the valley of Eshkol because that means cluster. And there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes that caught. So many grapes, one cluster. And they carried it between two of them on a pole. This is how big this one cluster of grapes was. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. Well, who cares about those? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one indication we get of this triune nature of God in the Old Testament is in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 12 through 17. where uh, We'll start in verse 12 to give us context of who is speaking here. He says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called... I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. There's the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the one true God, the first and also the last. We know Jesus took this title for himself in the book of Revelation and stretched out the heavens. This is who's speaking here. And so he goes on to say, all of you, verse 14, assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. And then he says, I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. Likely referring back to the one he named Cyrus in chapter 45, who he named 200 years or so before he was born. And then he comes back in verse 16 and says, Come near to me, hear this. This is the same one speaking, the Creator first and last. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. So it sounds like the Word who was with God in the beginning. <laughs> I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. And then he once again identifies who he is. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. And so we see this interaction of the three persons of the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. Of course, many people are not going to accept that as being what that says. 
I think it's pretty clear if you read through it. And then in John 10.30, you know, Jesus makes a statement. He says, I and my Father are one. That's not the word echad because we're in the Greek now and the same rules don't apply to that word. But Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. And the Jews understood what he's saying. What they do? They took up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be God. And in their minds, I would imagine they're repeating this Shema every morning and every evening. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Their minds are automatically going to go to, he's saying, he's the Lord God. The Lord is one. And so you can see their offense if they didn't believe what he was saying. They'd automatically relate this to the Shema. There's an Israeli website that puts it this way. The website is Kahila. I wasn't familiar with it. I just stumbled upon it here as I was studying. Uh, the word means community or congregation. And this site says, Echad is the Hebrew word for one, but more precisely it means a single entity but made up of more than one part. There's another Hebrew word from the same root, which is Yachid, which means single, period. The meaning of echad, more than one part, is a confirmation of the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated as God. Elohim is a plural word, more than one being called God. And they say this: there is one more clear proof of the triune nature of the God of Israel. We get this triune nature defined more specifically for us in the New Testament, of course. Clearly expounded, even in the life of Jesus himself, we see him filled to all the fullness of the Holy Spirit and continually living in dependency and fellowship with the Father and claiming deity for himself. Uh, we know the passage in Mark or Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus, where he comes to John to be baptized. And it says in verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we have all the three members of the triune Godhead there speaking and interacting. So he quotes his first part of the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, believing that God is one, though, is not enough. In uh, James chapter 2 and verse 19, he tells them, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They believe because they know that there is only one true God. But it's not enough just to believe that. Obviously, the demons are not saved by believing that there is only one God. There is a second step to the first commandment. And that is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a very comprehensive command. It leaves out no part of the nature of man. The word heart is many times used to refer to the entirety of a man, his whole being. But he talks about the soul. The soul is that part of your nature that makes you uniquely you, your personality. Sometimes it's spoken of as mind, will, and emotions. And here in this context, we have mind indicated separately or emphasized. Your mind is your thinking and reasoning apparatus, including your consciousness and your voluntary mental functions. It is distinct from your brain. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength interact with your brain. Uh, they, it's 
deemed, you know, this is where your understanding takes place, is in your uh, heart, soul, mind, strength. Just as you live in and use your body, so who you are uses your brain. Your brain is not who you are. You use your brain as part of the created person that you are. And then strength is all your power or ability. For example, clinging to God until it's no longer possible for you to do so. Not until you no longer feel like doing so, but until it is impossible for you to hang on any longer. And we know this, that God will also be your strength as He has promised. If you're a believer, you may be tempted to let go of His hand, but He will not let go of your hand. There are times where if it was dependent on you holding on to His hand through certain trials, you might not make it, but He is holding on to your hand as a believer and will not let you go. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So as a believer, you're there in the hand of Jesus and in the hand of God the Father, and no one can snatch you out of His hand. And no, you can't snatch yourself out of His hand. As some people try to deem it. Well, I can jump out of His hand. I can get out of His hand. Uh, I wouldn't encourage you to try, but I, you will find that you won't be able to. If you're a genuine believer, you're not going to be able to. You know, He will pursue you. He will enfold you. So, with these four things, um, heart, mind, soul, and strength, we can find overlap with these terms if we try to define them specifically. The idea here is to love God with all your being, there being no one else before Him. Uh, Henry Morris says, The main point is certainly that love for God with our whole being is the most important of all rules for living. So this love commanded is agape, the selfless love which God, with which God has loved us as it's defined in the New Testament, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That love that God has for us. 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. What manner of love is this? Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies. This is a love of action, not merely a love of feelings or sentiment. God, of course, has feelings or emotions. We're made in His image. He's compassionate, tender-hearted. He has loving kindness toward us. He he experiences grief, sorrow, joy, rejoicing, etc. But he didn't stop with feeling pity or compassion. He acted in his love. And in this love, we are also called to act toward him, loving him with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. We show him our love by keeping his commandments. This is a command to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yet, Keeping His commandments is how we express our love to Him. If we keep these two commandments, 
loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, then we are giving God pleasure. If you desire to please God as saints do, then there is no greater way that you can please God than by keeping His Word. This magnifies His grace and gives Him glory. This made me think of Eric Little, a missionary to China, but he's also known as an Olympian. And you may have seen the movie The Chariots of God, uh, which he's one of the characters in there. And uh, Chariots of... What did I say? That's bad, yeah. Chariots of Fire. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> thank you for uh, thank you for correcting me. And if I say things like that, please speak up and let me know. Um, so at one point, his family and some of his friends they're trying to discourage him from going and running in the Olympics. And they're saying, "Well, you know, the China mission. You know, this is your calling. This is where you'd be." And and you know, I don't have an exact quote of it, but he says something very much like this. He replies, I know that he has made me for China, but he has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so, you know, you know, he he glorified the Lord in his Olympics and in the things he said there, the things that he did. So uh, he was giving the Lord pleasure. And people might say, well, yeah, that's just the endorphins. You know, he's. When he runs, he feels endorphins. But the pleasing the Lord exceeds endorphins. You, you've probably experienced times where you've just felt the pleasure of the Lord, and it's so far beyond anything else. And if we want to give him pleasure, then we want to keep his commandments. John 15, 9-17, Jesus speaking to the apostles says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, that these two commandments bleed into each other. If we love, the, love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then... We're also to love one another, as, and so Jesus conjoins these. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you, that you love one another. So we see those two commandments. The first commandment bleeds over into the second commandment. These are so closely linked that one results in the other. Now, let me state a disclaimer once again, because we're talking about pleasing God by keeping His commandments. Uh, Because it's imperative that we don't make a mistake in this. We're not saved by keeping His commandments. There's no way we can be, because even as born-again believers, we don't keep them perfectly. 
we keep His commandments and we only desire to keep His commandments because we have been saved and we are being saved. It's a desire to please God that leads us to the desire to keep His Word. We don't want to confuse this because there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve the love of God or His provision of salvation. It's uh, talk, excuse me. It speaks to us again in the John 14:15, where Jesus says, "If you love me, keep my commandments." In 14:21, He says, "He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me." All right, how do we know we love God? Because we keep His commandments. It's a demonstration of our love for Him. If we, you know, we can make that statement: we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's. It's kind of, you know, airy-fairy nebulous out there, but it's concretely expressed by keeping His Word, keeping His commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's He who loves me, and He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my Word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John points out, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So this is a good place for self-examination. You know, I'm saying I love the Lord. Am I keeping his commandments? Uh, and John We'll see, he's very blunt with us about some of these things. And needs to be blunt with us so we can recognize, hey, you know, do I need to make some changes here? Do I need to, you know, seek the Lord more fully? In First John chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, John writes, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. He's emphasizing this love we're to have second commandment. This we know that we love the children by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So also this love toward one another is expressed by keeping his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, John says. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So these commandments may seem burdensome to us at times, especially when we're battling a fleshly desire, but the Spirit assures us that they are not burdensome, but encapsulate a blessing, they're a means of victory, and they maintain fellowship with God. A failure to keep His commandments is called sin. And then we must confess and repent of sin for fellowship to be restored. In 1 John 4.19, John writes and says, We love Him because He first loved us. That's the only basis of our love for Him. Agape love to God is a response and only a response to His agape love for us. David Guzik says, Every other act of obedience is empty if we do not love God first. And Jesus criticized the Pharisees for that very thing. So there's the first commandment. The second commandment Jesus gives 
Uh, he gives more in his answer than he was asked. The guy just asked, what's the first commandment? Jesus says, oh, and the second one, bonus, <laughs> is love your neighbor as yourself. And this is from Leviticus, of all books, 19.18, where the Lord says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so, this second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, um, is in this context in Leviticus. So agape love is to be expressed not only toward God, but also toward my neighbor. That is, my fellow human being, even an enemy, as Jesus clarifies in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but certainly toward, uh, especially toward the household of God. Here in Leviticus, it's in the context of the covenant with Israel. William MacDonald again says, We're to love God more than ourselves and our neighbor as ourselves. Thus, the life that really counts is concerned first with God and then with others. Material things are not mentioned. God is important and people are important. Material goods are going to be burned up. They will all perish. The commandment is not love your stuff as yourself. A commandment that is often easier to obey, but it's a commandment of the flesh and not of the Spirit. The verse from Leviticus is in the context of not taking vengeance for wrongs or bearing a grudge. We will quickly find that if we are going to obey the second commandment, forgiveness will be required of us because our neighbors can be incorrigible. I know because I am one. I can speak from personal experience. In John 15:12, we've already seen Jesus says, "This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you." That's the that's the standard of love. We've seen that requirement of the Lord: agape one another as I have loved or agape you. There's no wiggle room there. It's not a watered down love. John is always rather blunt about it in speaking by the Holy Spirit. In 1 John again, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says, and this is, you know, after Hebrews. Right? It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then in Chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, it says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is keeping that commandment again, in which there is a demonstration of our love for God. It's demonstrated by our love for one another. And so, uh, you know, we have this command, if we are loving one another, then we can uh, know that we're obeying the command of the Lord and that we're being pleasing to Him. And the only way we can demonstrate that is by our love to one another. That's what he says here. You know, if you don't love your brother whom you've seen, how can you love God whom you've not seen? How are you going to demonstrate that love of God, your love for God? The only way is by keeping his commandment to love one another. And he says, this is, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must, that's supplied, but the idea is there, love his brother also. 
it's not an optional kind of a thing, in other words. Um, it's actually a test, a measurement device for our love for God. We can examine ourselves, and if we're not loving our neighbor, our brother, our fellow believer, uh, then we can say, well, am I really walking in the faith of God? Am I really loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus Again, speaking to his apostles, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's extremely high standard. But he says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the testing ground for our pleasing of God. Second Corinthians 13.5, we're told to examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know? yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified. This is one of the means by which we can test ourselves and our love for God. First Corinthians 11, in the context of taking communion, verses 28 through 30, he says, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And, you know, there's debate of, you know, is he talking about the Lord's body because it's the bread, or is he talking about the Lord's body because it's the church? And I think in the context of this love for one another, I, I would think he's talking about the body of Christ because they were mistreating one another as they came together for this. And he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, many sleep. So there was a certain amount of judgment from God upon that, chastisement from God upon that their behavior, and it led to weakness, sickness, and many sleep. That means he took them home. <laughs> so this becomes a ground where we can really examine ourselves and say, well, you know, I really, I really hate that person. Something has to be dealt with. If we want to say that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we have to come to that point of forgiveness and of love. When Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about this second commandment, and he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Wait, Paul, this is the second commandment. And there's a recognition here that you can't keep the second commandment without keeping the first commandment. You have to be loving. The, the focus is still, you know, we love God more than ourselves. We love our neighbor as ourselves. As McDonald says, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he says to them, this is why, do this knowing the time that now it's high time to awake out of sleep. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That's true for every person who's believed for any period of time. That's true for us as a corporate people, but it's true for every individual. <laughs> At some point today, my salvation is nearer than when I first believed. Talking about the culmination of that salvation in the resurrection whether Jesus comes back at this point or not. The night's far spent, the day's at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. He basically says the same thing briefer in Galatians 5.14. And then in Matthew 22.40, there's another statement of Jesus. We read it earlier. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This sums up the message of the law of God and the message of the prophets of God. If we deny this, we deny God and Jesus. Now, there's a notion that's become popular with the um, rise of psychological counseling. And it says that uh, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, first we have to learn to love ourselves. And then once we can love our neighbors ourselves, maybe we can learn to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So it takes this, these commandments and flips them over to where loving yourself becomes the first commandment and loving God becomes number three. You know, or hardly worth thinking about because you're never going to get there. But these commandments of God assume rightly a self-love and a self-concern. We take care of ourselves. We're concerned about ourselves. People who say they hate themselves uh, misunderstand. Um, you know, I think I've heard Dave Hunt talk about this quite a bit, and he uses a, an example like, "I hate myself because I'm so ugly." And he said, "Well, when's the last time you were upset because somebody you hated was ugly? You're upset that you're ugly. You know, if you're if you're ugly because you love yourself. You want you, you don't want to be that. You know, and so we get this twisted idea, and it's from these." Uh, secular atheist psychologist that um, we we need this self-esteem and self-love. You know, we just need to come to the Lord, and you know He'll accept us as we are, and He'll bless us. And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to be down on ourselves. We don't have to be looking at ourselves. Uh, anyway, C.S. Lewis, thinking of a quote that somebody had said who said, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I'm not sure if humility is the right word that he used. But the the ideas there, our focus is to be on God and on others. And, you know, it's one of the devil's tricks to get us to focus on ourselves all the time because that leads to misery, ultimately. I don't know if, that really says what uh, I don't know if it makes sense to you, but loving our neighbor as self does not require us to learn to love ourselves before we can fulfill loving our neighbor and then loving God. So the scribe responds to him in verse 32 uh, and says, You've answered well. This man is to be commended for not responding as another did. Lord, I've kept these from my youth. Or as another who said, who is my neighbor seeking to justify himself? Among the scribes, here is a man who was seeking God and seeking foremost to please God. He recognizes the truth of what Jesus had stated to him. And he realizes that sacrifices and offerings are only efficacious if the inward man is right before God, coming in humility, recognizing his sinful condition and his need of forgiveness and salvation from the hand of God. And all this 
pointing to the ultimate sacrifice by which every man must be saved. Uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us there's, there is salvation, there, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, the answer of the young man is um, he recognizes as First Samuel fifteen, twenty-two and twenty-three says, or Samuel says, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, speaking to King Saul, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. This is disobeying God's commands. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And even in the Old Testament where these sacrifices are uh, prescribed, this is a continual message. These sacrifices are not what saves you. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And they're looking forward to the one to come and the sacrifice to come. So Jesus then encourages this young man in his pursuit of the kingdom. He commends him for his answer to Jesus' answer to him. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What does he need to do then to enter the kingdom? Keep the commandments perfectly? I mean, that would do it, but it's already too late for that at that point. Burn up more beasts? No, he only needs to take the final step. He's only one step away. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's one step away. He only needs to take that final step and recognize that the king of the kingdom is in front of him and to place his faith in the work of the king. He's the king worth bowing down to you and worth serving. Over in John chapter 6, where these people are wanting Jesus to feed them forever, in verse 28 it says, They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So, what, what, what are we going to do to obey God? And Jesus answers and says to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And then over in Romans chapter 4, we read about, Father Abraham, in verse 1, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I'm going to read one more passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, where it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices 
which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. I say, and this is this is a foreshadowing. The entire sacrificial system, a foreshadowing of what's to come. It says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of Jesus. He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. This is Psalms 40. And then I said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus came to keep the Father's commandments, to please the Father. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will... Jesus' will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, that is, are being made holy. He's perfected forever those who are still being made holy, who put their faith, their trust in him. So this this young man, he's just that close. You're not far from the kingdom of God. The religious leaders at this point give up trying to trap Jesus with a question. There's a double negative here which builds upon itself. Uh, when it says they didn't want to ask him any more questions, it says it, the idea is they did not dare, no way did they dare to ask him more. And double negative in English cancels each other out. Double negative in Hebrew and Greek just emphasizes it, makes it that much stronger. So uh, they're going to turn to another strategy at this point, and that's how to take him without a crowd uprising. And uh, so Jesus has got some more things to say here, and then they get an opportunity for their final uh, strategy to take him and to eliminate the threat that he is. So 